This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momenta Partners and Momenta Ventures. Welcome to our Digital Leadership Podcast. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 101 of our Digital Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Willie Schlacks, co-founder and president of Equipment Share, a Momenta Ventures portfolio company providing industry-disrupting, tech-enabled solutions designed for the modern contractor since 2014. Building off their experience starting numerous companies over the previous decades in construction, technology, and service sectors, Willie and his brother, Jabek, have scaled the company to 48 full-service facilities across the U.S. and into several global markets. As president of Equipment Share, Willie leads the technology division for the company and also serves as head of product. He oversees the engineering, business intelligence, marketing, data, science, and robotics teams. Willie, welcome to Momenta Partners Digital Leadership Podcast Series. Thanks. Great to be here. All right. So, as always, let's start with your professional journey. And I, I really like yours. You are truly a serial entrepreneur. Um, so, tell us a bit about your background and how it has informed your views of digital industry. So, you know, my brother and I, we started companies when we were fairly young. We had a, a slightly atypical uh, background and environment we grew up in. So, uh, the first company we started, I was about uh, nine or ten years old, and my brother was certainly the responsible party. He was five years my senior, but um, we we started a few companies, and one was within the construction space, and one was in the uh, technology space, uh, building computers back when that was a thing. And we would we would jump on our bikes and and ride to the local library, and that was sort of our, our window into the world. And we grew up, you know. In, Back in the days when uh, technology was was fairly nascent to you know most most people's lives and certainly ours uh, even to the extent you know TV and phones were were pretty uncommon. Um, but anyway, so we would you know really explore uh, and uh, satiate our curiosity you know in this portal into the world at the uh, library. So we checked out a bunch of books and became. Uh, you know, read up on on several of these industries, and and of course through the year, just became fascinated with um, the whole sector. And like you said, back when building computers was a thing, and this is when there was a you know a two eighty six chip and a three eighty six chip and four eighty six. I'm sure you remember this. And then they had the the chip wars and all all these things. And when a uh, a megabyte of RAM was a hundred bucks, um, so we started a business. You know, slapping together computers and uh, ordering parts through the mail and then uh, trying to sell those. And we, we ultimately uh, very quickly uh, grew that into some sizable jobs uh, that honestly we had no business doing. We were setting up, you know, one of them was this massive project, setting up a, a 911 call center. And I was literally, I wasn't even a teenager at that point. Um, but long story short, uh, that industry very quickly imploded as it should because <laughs> you know everybody and their uncle trying to build a computer was a pretty non-scalable methodology and Dell came around and, and wiped that away but it was a great foray into the 
technology world, particularly coming from an environment that had uh, absolutely no uh, level of, of technology that we would interact with. And at the same time, we started some businesses. Our first construction business was in the, uh, we, we built sheds. Again, we were kids and we thought this was absolutely brilliant in our minds where and we didn't realize that half the world already did this. But anyways, we thought this was pretty clever. We would do this uh, sort of rent-to-own methodology with uh, sheds, and we'd build these sheds. And then, um, you know, instead of somebody having to pay for the shed, we'd rent-to-own it type thing. And being kids, uh, people didn't necessarily take us as seriously as uh, we hoped. And we found ourselves in the repossession business pretty quick uh, because – that <laughs> what we thought is a lot of people just saw a, a free shed that they could buy from us. And, uh, um, and these things are actually pretty massive uh, with building codes, uh, which we didn't realize either. The reason why there was a lot of demand for our product um, with building codes, you could get away with building pretty much anything as long as it was considered a movable shelter. So people would order pretty sizable buildings. And if we slap skids on it, uh, they actually didn't have to get permits or comply with any building codes. So um, anyhow, uh, you know, as we grew up a bit through the years, we we moved into, you know, some larger businesses, got into government contracting, started a couple of construction companies and some service industries, uh, started a number of real estate companies and um, you know, e-commerce and a restaurant and just all over the map. Um, and equipment share was really born out of our experiences that we had started in those early days when we were pretty young boys, uh, starting construction companies. And fundamentally it was, it was about, you know, particularly as we grew some larger companies, it was about our inability to really react to, uh, things that were happening within our companies. Um, specifically within the construction sector. And we were always, it felt like we were always managing off the back of an ERP. You know, it was, it was always six months down the road, we'd figure out what was happening. Um, and that frustrated the hell out of us because we were pretty uh, ambitious around uh, scale and growth and, and really, you know, being the best at whatever it was we were, we were uh, engaging on. So, um, yeah, so that was a quick synopsis, but um you know, it, it brings us to now where we launched uh, Quibbershare as, as a result of all those experiences. Excellent. What a great story already. My, there's so many parallels, and I always like to ask kind of how this converges to equipment share, and you laid out a pretty good story there of how bringing all this together, and congrats, nine to 10 years old. Wow, my son is 13, and I wish uh, I wish he was as motivated at 13 as you guys were clearly at nine and 10, but uh, difference in generations, perhaps. Um, you are the very definition of a serial entrepreneur, and I have to imagine there's some, some uh, uh, DNA in all of this as well. Um, what is your and your brother's inspiration to create? Where does it come from? Um, well, actually, I think it has nothing to do with DNA. <laughs> um, and sorry to contradict you so quickly, <laughs> but um, <laughs> no problem. Um, but it, it, and that's partly because I'm, you know, I've with we, we've made so many mistakes through the years, and and those mistakes have been enormously valuable, and and you know we keep. Uh, chalking them up on a daily basis, certainly. But uh, one primary lesson that we've, you know, had to learn many times is is really around what is the core uh, critical ingredient when you are building and scaling a company. You know, assuming you get certain things such as product 
and uh, you know a direction and vision that that makes sense and you're headed you know if you have a compass that you're headed towards but from there what are the core ingredients and if not the most critical but certainly closest to it is simply the people you hire and the ability to hire the right people and from there we spent years trying to figure out how we could get better at that and we shifted from simply you know trying gut check responses of you know what feels right to very data-driven approaches and an enormous amount of testing and profiling around strengths and, you know, like a disc or, or Myers-Briggs, et cetera. Um, and then ultimately where we, we are now, and this is certainly still an evolution is we, we feel like it distills down to one, uh, simply one attribute. And that attribute is, yeah, has nothing to do with DNA or, um, really anything that, you know, you could perceive as part of one's environment or, uh, th- in other words, nobody has a leg up on this. And the one attribute we see that is a critical ingredient to uh, successful people that, you know, work well with an environment of an entrepreneurial company is simply humility. And humility defined as it's not a false humility or a personality or, you know, a persona or anything. It's simply the ability to assess data and other opinions in, in equality of your own. Because you'll never, you'll never really, in, in this context, be able to suppress your opinion or perceive it as lesser than others. Uh, you you feel and you know yourself more than anybody else in the world, and that's you know that gives you a subjective viewpoint that's critical and powerful uh, when you're thinking about a team perspective. Um, but the ability to simply weigh that inequality with other opinions and other data is absolutely essential. And in our minds, it's linked directly to intelligence. Like there is no, you know, IQ has far less of an impact than the ability to acquire new data and the ability to acquire new data and learn is simply the ability to, you know, keep, keep your, your own opinions and perspective and subjective viewpoint in check because it's always seeking to surmount, uh, the reality in the world around you. Um, and, and ultimately success is the biggest inhibitor to that because success really starts to uh, give your brain this mentality that somehow your viewpoint, somehow your perceptions are, are uh, you know, absolutely the direction to go. And that's the, the, the brain is a very prejudiced, uh, you know, thing, and, which is great. You know, it, it helps us make decisions very quickly. The stove is hot and you learn that quickly and then suddenly you don't have to think about it and weigh that decision. And, and it's, it's like, you know, a pretty advanced neural net that once it's trained, it's trained and it, it can take, you know, a while to retrain that. But it's interesting looking at people who are successful. Um, it's not that they lose intelligence over time, but it almost feels like it because their success breeds, their brain is telling them, well, this is the path that always makes sense. And that becomes more and more entrenched. And I say that for myself and really trying to be self-aware of, the fact that the biggest inhibitor to future success is simply success and the the way to counteract that is only through that level of humility that you know like i said you you assess uh opinions and data within the same uh spectrum and equality as as others and level that playing field for your brain so um that that was a long pretty long-winded answer to your question there but yeah my my point being that's you know i I don't think it had i'm my brother and I were very fortunate. The environment we grew up in was 
you know, a bit odd and, you know, atypical. And, you know, we didn't have, uh, you know, we didn't spend our, our summers off or <laughs> we didn't, we never had a TV till we were probably in our, our late teens. So, but we had to occupy ourselves in other ways. And our outlet was starting companies and we thoroughly enjoyed that. But, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm any better than your, your 13 year old son or, or worse. <laughs> just say. It's just the environment we were in. We, that was our, yeah. I was, you know, we, we were fortunate enough to have that, that outlet where we could really dig in and, and build companies at a very young age. So mm, I think I'll tie it all down to the fact that you didn't have a TV set until late in your teenagehood. So <laughs> it's always yeah, about simplification, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And with, with, I've got three kids now and, yep. and, uh, you know, my wife and I are huge believers in struggle and mm, the, yes. the essential yes. nature of struggle. And we're constantly trying to fabricate struggle for our kids because, you know, our kids are grow up in nice middle-class life and, you know, have had a lot of things that we, we never dreamed were possible that children would have when we were growing up. And we grew up on a farm. My wife, both her and I both grew up in, in a farming environment. So it's, it's somewhat ironic. We live in this neighborhood with, you know, all the neighborhood restrictions and she's literally trying to recreate a farm in the backyard. She's got, you know, <laughs> some cats. Now she wants to get a goat and sheep and all these things. And the neighbors just think we're crazy. They think, you know, <laughs> every time they go by, they sort of roll their eyes. But I, it, it's interesting watching my wife, uh, parent, and and you know, just even because. And, and I don't know if you grew up on a farm or not or whatever. But it's interesting when you're at a young age. And you have the lives of animals in your hands and you experience life and death at a pretty high cycle. Like, you know, these things die frequently <laughs> and whether it's, you know, like we have all the, the kids have rabbits and all these animals and occasionally one gets eaten by the fox that's in the neighborhood or whatever. So it's, it's interesting, you know, seeing those things, but um, it's our it's our little attempt at, you know, uh, what we knew and, and creating that struggle. But you know, we still have a TV, so maybe all hope yep. is lost. <laughs> <laughs> well, very, very insightful in the struggle. My wife and I actually have similar discussions relative to my son quite a bit because in our own ways, you know, we while we didn't work on farms per se, we did go through some form of struggle that I think is character defining uh, in the end. And the question is in, you know, in today's uh, prosperous society, and I live in Switzerland, right? And, and so it's pretty safe and, and prosperous. Um, how do you create that to define that character, right? So. Um, I, I give you a lot of credit for asking those questions. Um, tell us a bit about your founding of Equipment Share, a company as you describe is you know now disrupting even the largest construction rental companies. What problem were you trying to solve, and why? Yeah, so initially we were heavily focused on the asset vertical within construction, and construction is made of the three primary verticals: it's assets, people, materials. Um, actually, those are the only verticals. And out of that, you've got you know between 11 and 14 trillion, depending on if you include industrials within that. Um, so being focused on the the asset vertical, which includes equipment, vehicles, et cetera, um, that's really where the name came from. And you know we we had this vision and, and idea of ultimately creating connectivity on the job site and having that fluid trans you know transfer of asset ownership on the job site. Um, most people think that equipment share. It harkens very directly to a peer-to-peer -peer mentality. That was our naivety in naming this. We we're actually more we're comprehending like a on-premise job site uh, sharing, which is really what we're excited about. Less so peer-to-peer because peer-to-peer is still rental. You know, it's all it's all rental. It's just a sexier 
way of saying it, I guess. Maybe it helps you raise money or something. I don't know. <laughs> but anyhow, um, and and the reason for that is because the, the construction environment is very job-based, you know, it, you, you've, it, which is interesting. It's the only industry that I think that has this transient nature where you can have this environment that lasts for four hours a day or 10 years and everything in between. And every time a job commences, the environment is new. You have different players, different uh, location, you know, material subs, assets, everything is a mix of new ingredients there um, or different quantities and, and variables. And that makes it hard to measure. So equipment share was really initially started with a focus on the asset vertical of connecting consuming data and leveraging distribution to deliver that value. Um, and that's what we really uh, honed in on the equipment rental side because that was the beachhead into the job site. And really for us, a, a, a perfect platform for distribution that, because it not only made money, but also let us reach customers, which was critical. Um, within, gosh, a matter of months, we realized that, wait, we're building an ecosystem. You know, we can't stop at the asset vertical. We have to do the whole thing. You know, it can't just be equipment. It's got to be assets, people, and materials at the end of the day, or else it's not, you know, worth it. Yeah, we're, we're going to stop short of building value. Um, so really, you know, uh, our, our vision since the pretty early in the beginning did encompass the whole industry and building the ecosystem is what we're excited about. And that, you know, an ecosystem is simply the marriage of technology or connectivity at its core. So connectivity and distribution and the more mature connectivity, the less control or ownership you need over distribution and vice versa. So, um, yeah, so it was it was really about solving problems that we experienced as contractors and, you know, everything from access control. Take a, uh, you know, a, a Bobcat Skitsi or Genie telehandler or what have you. Take any machine globally. You can buy a key off eBay and it starts every machine in the world. And problems like and that leads to theft and theft of materials and safety issues and on and on. It'd be as if you had, you know, your sports car parked on the street and somebody could walk up to it and just jump in and drive off because, you know, they've got the key that starts every every car in the world. But that's the way it is in construction. Uh, so things that were so obviously painful to us as contractors, things like that, all the way to just not having visibility, uh, because that's what it starts with is if you don't have visibility and data at your fingertips, you can't make decisions and uh, so we were, you know, it's it's a broad it's a broad vision building the ecosystem, uh, but at the same time, um, you know, if you don't if you don't have that broad vision and you don't tackle the whole problem, then it's hard to say if you'll solve anything at the end of the day. Because if if you measure parcel data, is it any better than simply no data? Because it will will lead you to the wrong assumptions. So. Um, Anyhow, so the whole, you know, the strategy is about connecting, consuming data and then leveraging that data. And, uh, you know, we're in a real world industry. So in order to distribute our product, in order to meet that customer where they need it, that distribution is physical. And that's where we have physical yards and sites. And, you know, we have tens of thousands of assets that we deploy on a monthly basis and uh, focus very heavily on the equipment rental as our distribution source. So. 
Mm. So the um, um, when you mention an ecosystem, the idea of actors being in that system is you know comes to mind. And and in this case, as I understand it, and certainly for the audience's perspective, if I'm a, a construction site operator, I will order a, a bobcat in essence mm. by the hour, if you will. But if I'm that bobcat owner, how am I engaging with you guys to make that asset available to the construction owner? Yeah, it's just up to you as the owner. So it's not really about um, it's it's all about if you're thinking about the asset vertical, it's all about the life of the asset, extending the life of the asset, and reducing the cost. And what that means is, um, and, and the financial utilization of that asset. And what that means is, you know, usage usually reflects financial utilization. So increasing utilization is essential to that, certainly. Um, but that's often a, a choice that contractors need to make around, you know, ownership or renting or a mix of both, which we enable all of that on our platform. But it's a, it's a data-driven approach. Um, and we have different programs that enable that. Um, but it's interesting when you look at the actual, the largest impact to that, uh, you know, from a, from a monetary sense, the bottom line, uh, service events are probably one of the largest impacts to um, an owner as far as the bottom line to their asset, because it is a cost. Assets that depreciate our cost, period. There is no, you know, it's, it's unlike real estate where it's an asset that potentially appreciates in value substantially. Um, and then you you have things that are on the real estate that then potentially or do depreciate, but still it's this mix that the overall uh, investment or asset does appreciate, whereas equipment assets depreciate. So that's cost. So it's all about reducing that cost. Uh, which is, like I said, uh, focusing on those three variables. So one one way we really impact that is the digitization of service events. So service events is probably the biggest impact to the cost of an asset. And that's just simply things that happen to the asset that cause it to break down or things that you should do that can extend the life of the asset. So within our platform, everything is digitized, whether it's you know uh, through all our, our software workflows, whether it's customer uh, actual complaints and things that they say of what happened to this asset or, or the, the owner themselves, all the way to the mechanic, the parts, the consumables, the engine profile for the whole history of the asset, the operators, anything you possibly imagine is digitized. And that's what our data science teams leverage to not only predict uh, events before they occur in the future so they can be prevented, but also predict likely uh, corrections and uh, to a service event that speeds up the, the correction of that, reduces the cost, and then gets that back in service and increases utilization faster. So um, it, it's fairly complex when you look at the amount of variables and the amount of assets that are out there and how much you have data you have to consume to really start having anything uh, that's viable, uh, which, which we certainly do now. But um, yeah, so it is, it is less of a simple, you know, should I rent, should I buy this machine, or when I'm not using it, I want to rent it out. There, there's a huge amount of complexity around the service events. And, and also, honestly, every asset is different and utilization is targets are different for them. And uh, balance sheet questions of, do I own this on my balance sheet or offer all that? There's, there's quite a bit of uh, com- complexity and, and even sophistication in the industry that's, that's currently present and that we sort of incorporate into our platform. So 
that was a pretty, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. that was not a straight answer, but yeah. <laughs> well, there, there's always out. nuggets of intelligence in everything you say, and it goes really deep. And I wish we had like 10 times the amount of time because I'd love to follow some of these down. You know, it's interesting. A lot of entrepreneurship comes to pattern matching, especially across very different sectors or use cases. And the way that you've described the, I'll call it kind of a, a studio production of a construction site in some sense, right? Bringing together all the experts, right? create that masterpiece and then move on is a way that a recent uh, endeavor we've done on the advisory side was for uh, medical care facilities and think about patients and diagnostic equipment, uh, the, 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 the patient care staff, um, the hospital itself, and how all of that needed to come together just in time, stat, if you will, right? And then would disband and kind of go off to their different directions. And so there's a, a lot of parallels in that. And I, it's interesting because ecosystem was also a name that came up in, in some of that work as well. Um, I see you've, you've, you've uh, created an adjacent company called Machine Link. How does this relate to, uh, to Equipment Share? Machine Link was a, it's a brand of Equipment Share, and it's really the uh, white-label technology platform. So we partner with quite a few OEMs from a distribution perspective, and all this data that we consume from their machines is highly valuable to them. So Machine Link is the, the white-label of our our technology platform that OEMs can use. Uh, OEMs stands basically manufacturers. Um, mm-hmm. So, so we're currently the largest distributor for quite a few manufacturers globally, and this is our really this is our our way of connecting with them and enabling them to benefit from, from that data. Because at the end of the day, we firmly believe, and we we try to always make choices around customer value and connecting you know, manufacturers to their machines and the data and enabling them to build better machines is a critical part of this solution. So Machine Link is really that that brand for the OEM side. Every disruptive play includes somebody who's being uh, disrupted per se. Um, and I apologize, this is probably a little off script, but I'm kind of interesting. Who do you, would you say Equipment Share is disrupting out there? Because you mentioned the OEMs, rental companies, things like that. Who are, who are the ones that are most likely to be disrupted? Yeah, well, I think uh, we disrupt ourselves the most. <laughs> we keep ourselves <laughs> on our toes. So um, I think, uh, yeah, they're, they're certainly not as uncomfortable as we are in the sense of having to constantly pivot and shift. But uh, that's the environment we like we like being uh, you know, on, on the forefront of discovery every day. That's that's pretty exciting for us. Uh, so past that, it's certainly the equipment rental companies are the ones who probably feel like they're being displaced to a certain extent. Um, because we're building the ecosystem, what they don't realize, because we don't really consider them competitors, uh, what they don't realize is that we're building a platform that will ultimately uh, enable them and that they will ultimately live within or they will probably die. Um, and so it's, they, I think they do see us as, uh, you know, as if we're out to get them or, or really, you know, like I said, displace them. And honestly, we're hyper-focused on customer value and building an ecosystem. And at the end of the day, what I said originally around ecosystem with, you've got connectivity and distribution. And when your connectivity matures to a point of, or a level of saturation, uh, there's a certain threshold it crosses where you don't need to control uh, or physically own distribution, and you can really start relinquishing that because uh, there's certainly that that in and of itself ultimately is a commodity in my mind. Like the technology and data, at the end of the day, 
is never a commodity because that's a variable that always changes and you, the ability to consume it and the sort uh, being the, the repository of that is the ultimate gold mine. Uh, and any ecosystem, the ultimate manifestation is simply a data company and it's no different for us. Um, but yeah, I don't think any of our competitors would, would be hardened by my statements. I think they would still feel <laughs> pretty, pretty displaced, but in 10 years from now, I think they'll realize that, yeah, we're, we're honest. They're, they're either looped in and, and enjoying the, the fruits of our labor or they're, they're probably not around. So, mm. The World Economic Forum has used the term the Great Reset when referring to the long-term impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. <clears throat> what do you see the impact of this reset uh, on the future of the construction industry? Yeah, great question. Uh, we're right in the middle of it, so um, at least here in the States. Um, uh, construction, you know, it's always is it, always going to be there. Uh, it certainly will constrict a bit, and that's just the nature of when you have job starts, uh, which is the front side of the industry, you know, where architects are working with owners to draw plans and engineers, and then they release those projects and then contracts are executing on those. And there's a bit of a lag factor. So, you know, we'll, we'll see more of that impact in Q3, Q4, et cetera. Um, we're personally not highly concerned uh, from a business perspective, simply because we're, we're sort of on the front side of demand, but from an industry perspective, on your question there. Um, I think it'll be nominal uh, if you look in the, you know, if we're looking at a decade perspective, like, you know, this certainly will go down in the history books, but the impact of construction won't be tremendous. Uh, certainly not like it will to the uh, airline industry or some travel sectors, which are just directly decimated by, you know, the the events and, and you know, those those industries will certainly feel more of an impact. Uh, but yeah, I think we'll, we'll see a, at least a quarter, uh, blip and, um, like most industries and, and then it, it starts to revive and the nature of construction construction is the, always the front side of GDP. I mean, it's, you know, if anything is going to generate from a, uh, you know, market cap GDP, uh, economy, macroeconomy perspective, it always starts with the construction because, you know, if you're, if you have a refinery or a data center or a school or a highway, whatever, it's always, it starts with this thing gets built. <laughs> and then from there, uh, you've got consumption and commerce that starts to flow. Um, and part of, you know, really what our metric that we measure our success by is starting to shift the static productivity metric within the industry to something that's positive uh, because nothing has really changed since the late 1940s. So for us, we are in the beginning stages of that. I mean, we've barely dipped our toe in the water. We feel, you know, just because of the size of the industry, unless we're doing north of 10 billion in, in revenue, it's hard to see a validation that we've really made an impact on the industry. Um, you know, I think you can look at growth and whatnot and determine an impact in customers and you can show and validate a product based on demand, et cetera. But as far as an industry this big, um, you know, we're, we're not making the impact uh, that we, we want to see at all simply because of scale. And, mm. uh, you know, we're about an order of 10x off of that uh, from a revenue perspective before we would feel that would validate any measure of impact. Um, no, those are assumptions we're making. We could be wrong. Maybe we'll make an impact before then, but it is such a, you know, when you think about $14 trillion of commerce, um, that's just a, that's a sizable chunk that, you know, it's, it's hard to, 
see, uh, you know, a, a platform because we, we believe strongly in profit and profit being a validation of a product. And so we, we sort of use that to measure our success, not whatever, you know, users or what have you. Like this is a B2B industry. If, if you've got a product that works, you're going to generate profit. And if you aren't, you're just kidding yourself and everyone else. So, um, anyhow. That's an opinion that would have been handy back uh, in the dot-com implosion. <laughs> true. Very true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but advertising, right? That was the, the chief answer back then. That's how we're going to generate. Yeah. So, um, You have been a serial entrepreneur, and I've, I remain impressed with how early you did that and, and the pivots you and your, your brother went through. What advice would you offer to aspiring entrepreneurs? Um, yeah, I think, uh, uh, a big one would be, um, you don't actually need money. And I say that because just to counterbalance the impression that many entrepreneurs will get that, you know, they have to, they go through this fundraising cycle and, and feel success from that. Um, but you, you literally don't need anything except yourself. And ultimately at the end of the day, you don't have anything by yourself and it, your success is contingent as far as, you know, building something of quality that has lasting value and uh, will have an impact. Um, that is a reflection of who you are at the end of the day, which is very sobering <laughs> because, you know, to to have that, you know, answer be simply a mirror is not, uh, you know, it's not an easy path, but it is if I were to look back and be able to talk to my, you know, 15 year old self, uh, that's what I would say, because I've made the mistake so many times thinking that, you know, the source of success and the source of success specifically in entrepreneurship uh, is outside somewhere else. And often, you know, because of the the way uh, fundraising and, and financial things catch headlines, there's certainly an impression that um, being able to fundraise or do these things is somehow critical and whatnot. But and pick pick whatever. Like there's a bunch of different things, but that happens to be one of the top ones that I hear many entrepreneurs say they they can't do or you know they don't have access to or whatever. And the answer is you don't need it. It's just an excuse. And unless you're looking inward, uh, you'll never find uh, anything lasting from an entrepreneurial standpoint. So. Hmm. Well said. No, very deep thoughts. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sure uh, uh, SoftBank could have benefited from those. <laughs> so, and, and they will. Yeah. I mean, he's. I we we were engaged with SoftBank for quite a bit there, and I think this is a good thing for them because this this creates humility. And like I said, success is the biggest inhibitor of future success. And SoftBank just had tumor success. I mean, Alibaba is a remarkable story, and yeah. that 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 creates some pathways in the brain that are hard to get out of, and that rut led to many uh, mistakes, which I'm sure Masa recognizes now um, mm. because, you know, he's a, he's a pretty solid guy. He's, he's an entrepreneur. And, you know, in my conversation with him, I really get the impression that um, he, he's always had an anchor that's rooted in his belief and core belief of, of investing in founders that are quality. And mm. it's just the level of blindness because, you know, everyone has a subjective viewpoint and his subjective viewpoint got narrower and narrower with the more success that he achieved. But there's been a reset and it's probably been really healthy for him. And I'm sure he, he'll look back and say, yeah, that was the best thing that happened. Well, and congratulations to you guys on the consideration from SoftBank. That says a lot, um, especially given the the timing that that, that interest was there. Um, <clears throat> as digital industry investors, we always like to ask, you know, for your recommendations on interesting startups, who would you consider the ones to watch beyond, of course, uh, equipment share? 
That's a good question. Um, I, I apologize. I'm not one to ask for this. <laughs> I, I really should follow this more. I, I spend most of my time immersed in, in, uh, the equipment world and, and have not, uh, yeah, I have actually, honestly, I have far less insight than you do. I know you guys. Uh, <laughs> well, actually better. as an investor, I, I, I'd love to ask questions that. from you, but yeah, no, it, it's true though. I think you guys have a far better perspective. You, you spend every day thinking about that question and, and really, really surveying the landscape. And maybe, you know, that, that's the thing about an answer to that or a perspective of that. You don't have to necessarily go deep. You can, that, that intelligent insight uh, is gained from time. I mean, you guys spend so much time thinking about that, that you're, you're not the experts and certainly more of an expert than I am. Because uh, I can stumble through an answer here, but I'd rather not because I'll look foolish. <laughs> I, I I suspect you're you're bluffing us a little bit because as an ecosystem play, you guys make a very natural platform for a uh, anchor and roll up strategy, and uh, I'm sure there's more than one person who's thinking about that these days. So I'll I'll let you not answer that, and we can just we can move on to the next question. <laughs> so so in closing, um, can you provide any recommendations of books or resources that inspire you? I heard gardening inspires you, so uh, maybe maybe it comes back to having chickens in the backyard. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, gardening actually doesn't inspire me. It inspires my wife. Uh, certainly, she's an avid gardener. Um, but honestly, it's too much. It's, I, I'm slightly lazy, and it's a critical flaw in my character. And gardening and people who garden, I mean, actually, I think it's therapeutic for them, and it probably is is, but it's it's hard work. And people like my wife are just far more hardworking than I am. But um, yeah, as far as books, uh, there's one I'm reading right now that's just freaking fascinating. Um, and the title is escaping me. It's on Lincoln. Um, what the hell is it called? The uh, something about uh, a team of adversaries, or I, I can't remember. Anyways, the whole point of this book is. It really goes through Lincoln and his some peers that he ultimately pulled into his administration through their lives. And it's absolutely fascinating because there's obviously, you know, whenever you read history, you're always struck with the correlations between current events <laughs> and any other event in history. It's like, wow, these are and it's because, you know, these are humans and they're they had all the same drives and struggles and everything. But um, you know, we we talked about struggle a little bit before, and it's just remarkable the level of the depth of character and intelligence in these individuals in the, you know, early 1800s uh, or mid 1800s. And, and even, even the, the, the nature of life is we're in the middle of a global pandemic right now. And, uh, you know, it's devastating to many families and individuals and, uh, you know, an economy. The reality though, back then was that was a common occurrence every other year. I mean, even, you know, take Lincoln, his mother, his sister, his first love, I mean, his child, I mean, almost, you know, over a majority of people that he engaged with at a very intimate level died from the fever or the Spanish flu or whatever they would call it, sweeping through at whatever period. And it wasn't just once, it was every other year this was happening. And the the amount of suffering that, you know, uh, generations previous to us have experienced is just astounding when you go back and read it. And even, you know, the, the, I, I can't remember quite the statistics, but I think it's some, somewhere in the 1800s, mid-1800s, the, the average age of uh, males, I'm not sure what females was, but males was, I think it was 38, 36 or 38 or something. Um, 
and you know and and fast forward to now is just we we live in such luxurious times and it's wonderful and you know the life expect expectancy is double what it was you know a little over 100 years ago and all these wonderful things and that trend in my mind only continues it, i'm fairly optimistic about you know humanity and the the ultimate trajectory we're headed in um but, and sorry, I got totally distracted. Uh, I think it's Team of Rivals. That's that name is popping into my head. Okay. But anyways, it's it's okay. about Lincoln and absolutely fascinating. Love it. Uh, it's the one I'm reading now. But yeah, happens to be. It's usually the book I'm reading currently is my top suggestion because <laughs> it's fresh in my mind. Yeah. Well, Willie, thank you. This has been a really insightful and an introspective uh, interview. Um, I, I do appreciate very much your, your deep insights. Um, so thank you for uh, joining our podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Appreciate you guys uh, taking the time to chat. This was enjoyable. Excellent. So this has been Willie Schlacks, co-founder of Equipment Share, a lifelong entrepreneur, digital industry leader, and uh, a deep thinker, I think, about all things life. Thank you for listening, and please join us next week for episode 102 of our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast Series, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. Thank you, and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Leadership Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the discussions. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of prior podcasts, webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening. 